The Network Live. News, insights, and stories right here on KNEL 95.3 FM and KNELradio.com every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Don't miss this opportunity to hear world news, insights, and stories from guests around the world. The Network Live is your pathway to connecting people and ministries. Good morning and welcome to the Network Live. I'm your host, Debbie Rule. Today we'll be hearing a message called Happy Birthday, America from David Barton. From all of us at the Network Live, have a happy and safe 4th of July. Tell America happy birthday. And as we look at Independence Day and as we look at our birthday, a lot of people today, it's like, what's Independence Day all about? It's a holiday, we celebrate it. Why did we celebrate it? Mark Dice went out in San Diego to ask that question. What country famously broke away from England to start their own country in the late 1700s? I have no idea, man. I don't know. (laughs) What are we celebrating on the 4th of July? Our independence. A little more specific. It's the day that we overtook the South. And it's the day that, um, it's our independence. It's, that's why we have the fire. From the South. From the South, exactly. So it was the victor of the Civil War? Yes. Fourth of July? Yes. The Declaration of Independence was signed by who? I don't know. Just name one person. Um, Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Not? What year was that declaration? Was it 1964? <laughs> 84? 1984. 84? I don't know. Oh, no. 1864? 1864. I don't know. This country, no wonder this country's in trouble. <laughs> okay. What country did we declare our independence from? Help me, baby. Nope, just you. You're on your own. <laughs> Um, California. California. From. Oh, from. We declared independence from a certain country, which is why we celebrate Fourth of July. What country was that? I don't have no idea. You're going to be celebrating, though. Yes. Yes. But you don't know what you're celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Okay. That's tonight's homework. So we've got Independence Day. We may not know what it's about, but we do have Independence Day, but there's something worth noting about it. When you look at the average length of a governing document in any nation in the history of the world, the average length of the governing document is 17 years. This Thursday, we will celebrate 243 years under the same piece of paper. We've been blessed in ways we don't even recognize. We're so used to stability, we think it's natural. It's not. What we have is unusual for any nation in the history of the world. So where did it come from? Well, let's go back to our beginnings. If we go back to our beginnings, that's gonna take us back to about the time of the American Revolution, which means the founding fathers. And by the way, anytime we look at history, I don't care who we look at, founding fathers, I don't care what nation it is, what period of history, the starting place is always very simple. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. So we look at the Founding Fathers as a group, and you know what? There's some guys in there that really were godly, really were good. They're going to be like the Apostle Paul. I mean, they were just gung-ho. They were right on Christian issues. Then there's going to be guys like King David that overall, they loved God, had a good heart, but they sure made some goof-ups along the way. And then you got folks like Samson, 
that, you know, the whole lot of goof-ups with him, but he loved his nation, did a lot of stuff for God's people. So when, anytime you look at history, you gotta realize there's individuals involved, and when we look at a group, a group that we call the Founding Fathers, they're made up of individuals, and they're individuals, and they've all fallen short of the glory of God, just like we have. These guys first got together in 1774, September 1774, in Philadelphia. There was things going on with Great Britain at that time that really concerned them, said, we need to talk about what our response is gonna be. So when they got together, they come from 13 different colonies, 13 different states. And by the way, the states were not part of a nation then. They didn't even like each other, many of those states. So when they got together, the guys from Georgia had never met the guys from New York. The guys from Massachusetts didn't know the guys from Virginia. So they get together and all these guys meeting each other for the first time, how do you start? Well, they started with prayer. I mean, that's what we do at city council and school board. No, these guys didn't do that. They started with prayer. It was a two-hour prayer session that they started with. That's the first act of the first Congress. In addition to prayer, John Adams, who was there, he, he wrote Abigail, his wife. He said, Abigail, not only did we pray, but we studied four chapters of the Bible. And God so spoke to us in that Bible study, so spoke to us out of Psalm 35. You've got to see what Psalm 35 said. So he told Abigail, he said, Abigail, he said, I must beg you to read that psalm. Read the 35th psalm to your friends. Read it to your father. Abigail, you've got to see what God showed us this morning in Psalm 35. For the first time, we as a group think we're going to be able to defeat the British. But he told her more. He said, in addition to having this two hours of prayer, in addition to having, having Psalm 35 and this Bible study, he said, we have appointed a continental fast. We've called people to time of fasting and prayer. He said millions would be up on their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings. It smiles on American council and arms. He said, Abigail, can you imagine the impact of having three million Americans pray and fast? And three million is what we had back then. So what you have is this is the first of 15 times that Congress called the nation to days of prayer. Now, this first day of prayer that they called was a day of humiliation and fasting and prayer. And if you look in the records of Congress, about four or five months later, they say, hey, you remember that day of fasting and prayer we had? Man, look how God answered all this prayer and that prayer. Let's have a day of Thanksgiving. And so that's what the day of Thanksgiving is for, and that follows the day of prayer and fasting. But then a few months later, they say, look how things are going. We really need God's help. Let's have another day of prayer and fasting. And so 15 times, Congress said, let's have a day of prayer and fasting. Uh, it's time for Thanksgiving. No, it's time for more prayer and fasting. No, it's time for things. 15 times it goes back and forth. And the government called the people to prayer so often that by the time that you get to 1815, there were 1,400 government-issued calls to pray. The government called the people to pray 1,400 times by 1815. <clears throat> now, within that framework, you see the number 1,400 there. Right under it, you see the word John Hancock. John Hancock is one of the founding fathers, one of the signers of the Declaration. He's the governor of, of Massachusetts, and so he called his people to prayer. This is one of his prayer proclamations. We own 100,000 documents from 41812, so I have thousands of the original handwritten documents of the founding fathers, including prayer proclamations. This is for a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer. Now, John Hancock called his state to prayer on 22 separate occasions. Why would John Hancock what would John Hancock have the state of Massachusetts fast and pray for? Well, he said very simply, we need to fast and pray that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. Ooh, that's a pretty strong prayer request. But he had other times, he called them 22 times. Look at some of the other requests. He said, let's pray and let's fast that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the whole earth may be filled with his glory. He said, let's also pray 
that and confess our sins before God and implore our forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He had other times, he said, let's pray that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be continually increased until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory, and on it goes. Now, he's a governor. Can you imagine what would happen in America today if any governor had a proclamation like that? Obviously you can, because you're snickering about it. Okay, let's go a step further. Can you imagine what would happen if any Massachusetts governor had Massachusetts praying fast for that? He did. That's the governor of Massachusetts. 22 times he calls his people to prayer. So what happened after this first national day of prayer and fasting, uh, John Adams wrote Abigail. He said, Abigail, you're not going to believe what's happening. And he went through and he says, he said, listen to this. He said, Colonel Smith and a group of his men has just captured a British fort. And we read that today and say, so what? That's what we're supposed to do. We're fighting the British. No, no, you got to understand, at the time he wrote that, we were not yet an independent nation. We did, had not signed the Declaration of Independence yet. We're trying to build a nation, and that means we're trying to build a military. We have no military. Now, Great Britain's the greatest military in the world at that power, and we're asking a bunch of shopkeepers and school teachers and farmers to go home and get their rifle off the mantle over the fireplace and come back and take on the world's greatest army. That's not going to be much of a fight. And so what happened is, as we are trying to build the American military, here's the way it worked. Now, I've got two kids in active duty army right now. Understand military, there's a lot of military veterans here, there's a lot of military officers here. And so what I'm about to tell you about the American Revolution, if you're an officer, please don't be offended, this is just the way it was back then. What happened, to build the American military, they said if you can get 20 of your neighbors to come enlist with you, if you can go find 20 of your neighbors and recruit them and enlist with you, you get to be a colonel in the United States Army. Ooh, a little different from today. So what happens when John Adams says, Colonel Smith and a group of his men just captured a British fort? What he actually said was, Farmer Smith and a bunch of his neighbors just captured a British fort because that's what was going on. He said, in addition to that, he said, we have captured a 20-gun British man of war and we captured a 64-gun British man of war. Now, that's impressive because we didn't have a navy at that point. We haven't even built the navy. Well, I take it back. We did have a navy of sorts. It wasn't much of what you would think of a navy. If you want to see the American navy back then, you go to Washington, D.C., go to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, go up on the third floor. Up on the third floor, you will see the American navy. The American navy is not much more than a rowboat with a cannon at each end. That's got to scare the British to death to see that coming at them. Okay, so we capture a 64-gun British man of war and a 20-gun British man. How do we do that? Well, John Adams said a bunch of them were talking at a tavern, and this is what they concluded. He said, looking at what's happened, since we had that day of prayer and fasting, looking at all the things that's happened, he says, it appears to me the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. He said, there's no way to explain this except it's a God thing. None of this makes sense unless you look at the God factor in this. Now, significantly, many others saw the same thing. For example, in 1778, George Washington, commander-in-chief, military leader, he wrote a letter to, to uh, Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson is a general, but he's also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, you and I have been through so many battles. We've seen so much happen in battle. He, he says, when you see it, he said, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked 
that hath not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. Thomas, if people had seen what you and I have seen in battle, if they had seen all the times that God had showed up and intervened in battle, he said, if they see that, and if they don't feel an obligation to show gratitude to God, if they don't feel an obligation to hit their knees, he said, they're not just infidels, they're just flat, wicked. They've got a hard heart. If you've seen what we've seen in battle, and you've seen how many times God has showed up, You've got an obligation to hit your knees and think. See, that's what the military commander-in-chief is saying is there, there's just no way we should have been winning these battles. This, this is a God deal. It was that way throughout the revolution. By the time you get to 1781, the American Revolution comes to an end with the final battle there at Yorktown. As a result of what happened at Yorktown, the British lay down their arms. And when the British lay down their arms for the first time in 150 years, it does not matter what the king tells us because we're not under a king anymore. Now, the reason that's significant was 150 years earlier, right when America got started, the British king said, oh, by the way, you do realize we have a national religion in Great Britain? So whatever the king is, that's what you'll be. If the king's Catholic, that's you. If the king's Protestant, if he's Anglican, that'll be you. So you cannot print any Bible in the English language in America. Whatever the king has, that's what you'll have too. So we're not allowed to print Bibles in America in the English language. But as a result of what happened at Yorktown, we now can. We're not under British law anymore. So at that point in time, they said, let's print a Bible in English in America. That Bible rolled off the presses 11 months later in September of 1782. It's called the Bible of the American Revolution. It's one of the rarest books in the world. They printed 10,000 copies back then. There are eight copies left today in private hands. There are some in institutional hands. But of those eight copies left in private hands, I have one of those eight copies. I have one of those original copies. And it's pretty cool because when you look at it, you say, well, who printed this first Bible in English? And it's a guy named Robert Aiken. Who's Robert Aiken? Robert Aiken is the official printer of the Congress of the United States. Really? That's why when you look at the inside of the Bible, you find on the inside of the Bible, there's a congressional committee right there. You have James Dwayne, the chairman of the committee. The Bible also has in the front William White and George Duffield, the two chaplains of Congress, because not only was there a committee of Congress over this, you, you had these two chaplains that said, yeah, we've looked at the scriptures. He hasn't changed anything. It's still God's word. It's still accurate. And so at the bottom, it has an endorsement. It says, resolve the United States and Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So the first Bible printed in English in America is printed by the with an endorsement of the Congress of the United States? Really? Well, why would they have done this in the first place? Well, when you look at the records of Congress, Robert Aiken explained to Congress, he said, look, he said, this Bible, this Bible will be a neat edition of the Holy Scripture for the use of the schools, end quote. Say that again. The first Bible printed in English in America was a neat edition of the Scripture for the use of the schools, it has a congressional endorsement in front of it. By the way, this is the actual original memorial to Congress, the handwritten, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures, the use of schools. How many of you learned that in history class? See, we didn't get this at all. The founding fathers said, yes, this is a perfect Bible for our schools. Oh, founding fathers didn't want the Bible in schools. It's so different from what it was. But that's 1782. When you get to 1783, these are the guys who signed the peace treaty to secure America as an independent nation. We ended the battles in 1781, generally a few skirmishes after that. 1783 is when we get to be an independent nation. And these guys, on the left you have John Jay and the sinners, John Adams. On the right is Ben Franklin. They signed the peace treaty. There's the signatures right there. The top signature. 
signature by the wax seal is David Hartley. He's the British guy who signed the treaty. And then under that is John Adams, Ben Franklin, John Jay. Above it, you see Article 10. There's 10 articles in the treaty. You can still see this treaty today. It's on display in Washington, D.C., the sixth floor of the State Department. You can go right there and look at it. And if you do, if you look at the title of the treaty, the title of the treaty says, In the Name of the Most Holy and Undivided Trinity. I could be wrong, but I think that's Christian. Does that sound Christian to you? We get none of this tone today when we look backwards at all. So the document that secures our independence says in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, that was the tone throughout. John Adams knew that. John Adams signed the Declaration of the Start. He signed the Peace Treaty at the end. John Adams said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. He said, I will now avow that I believed, I then believed, and I now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. He said, I was there from start to finish, and I'm telling you, we did this on the principles of Christianity. Now, it's interesting to me to see how we portray this today. I love collecting articles from across the nation. For example, the LA Times, the article the LA Times has, it says, America's unchristian beginnings. It says, the founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. You gotta let the academics get involved in this. So professors tell us, the founding fathers were not Christians. I love this. John Adams said, we did this in Christian principles. Academics says, I have a PhD. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. I'm telling you, they aren't Christians. Isn't this crazy? The eyewitness who actually wrote about it, who actually, we ignore them and we go to guys who are academics. And there's some good academics out there. But by and large, why don't you go with the eyewitnesses who are actually there? See, that's, we don't do that in education anymore. And then we've got a whole chain of newspapers on the East Coast who ran this editorial. The authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. Now, this is the kind of stuff that's out there. And this is usually the kind of stuff we hear and it's interesting. I do speaking at a lot of universities and colleges. I was at Duke University Law School. Sharp kids at Duke. I put this picture up of the signers of the Declaration, 56 guys there. I said, who do you guys reckon? I asked the kids, Duke, tell me who you can call by name. Which signers can you call by name? And they said, well, there's Thomas Jefferson and there's Ben Franklin. And then it was the sound of crickets. No other sound at all. I said, come on. You have 54 more to go. Give me somebody else. They couldn't. I said, Okay. Let me give you some hints. Let me just take you across the front row. Uh, right here, you have Richard Henry Lee. Right beside him, you have Sam Adams. Then you have George Clinton. The guy looking backwards the opposite direction is Charles Carroll. The guy in the light brown jacket on the front row beside him, wait for it, Robert Morris. Then beside, <laughs> beside him, you have Benjamin Rush. The guy leaning on his elbow in the front row, Elbridge I can just keep going through the other 54 names. They said, who? Never heard those names before. Isn't it interesting that today we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers. We can find them, don't have a clue about the others, but they all had to be like Franklin and Jefferson. Well, not really. As a matter of fact, a bunch of these guys were involved in Christian ministry. In fact, 29 of these guys graduated from schools that in their day were considered Bible schools and seminaries for training of ministers. Among those, you will look at folks like John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon's the president of Princeton University. John Witherspoon is the best-known gospel evangelist in his generation. He is the Billy Graham of his day. More than a dozen volumes of published gospel sermons. Also, in addition to that, he is the guy who gave us this. This is America's very first family Bible done in 1791. This Bible was big enough that families can gather around and have Bible studies together. That's the original from 1791. When you read the writings of people like John Witherspoon, you find statements like this. 
I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other, Acts 4.12. If you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. I'm not used to atheists talking this way. I mean, this, this is kind of unusual because these are atheist, agnostic, deist founding fathers. Then you have people like Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, John Adams said he's one of the three most notable founding fathers. He said you have George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. And today we go, I've never heard the guy. Well, he's the father of public schools under the Constitution. He started five universities, three still go today. He's a huge civil rights guy. Started the first abolition society in America as an act of civil disobedience against King George III. He led the national abolition movement. He helped start the first black denomination in America, trained the first black physicians. By the way, he was the most famous doctor in American history. He was the director of the U.S. Men. I can just keep going with all the stuff the guy did. In addition to that, Benjamin Rush is also the guy who founded the Sunday School Movement in America. He's also the guy who founded the first Bible Society in America. Here's the first Bible Society, and they produced the first mass-produced Bible. This is from Benjamin Rush, first mass-produced Bible ever done in America. Now, why would he found a Bible Society? He said, if we can get God, if we can get Americans into the Bible, he said, two things will happen. If we can get them into the Bible, number one, they'll become Christians, find out how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Number two, if we can get them into the Bible and have them read and study the Bible, he said, we'll solve all of our social problems. We won't have crime. We won't have slavery. He went through all the things we would not have would get in God's Word. And so when you look at his writings, he has numerous writings. We have volumes and volumes of his writings. This is what he says. My only hope of salvation is the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested in the world by the death of his Son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That sounds evangelical to me. It should, because he was an evangelical. We have people like Roger Sherman. He's the only founding father to sign all four founding documents. He also is a framer of the Bill of Rights. In addition to that, he's a theologian. He wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. When you look at statements from Roger Sherman, you find statements like this. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. He says, God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel, that is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. That's very Christian. It should be. He's a Christian theologian. By the way, this is the way the newspapers talked about him. Newspaper says, Roger Sherman, the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase a copy of the Scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. You see, he was in Congress a long time, and back then they believed you should read the Bible from cover to cover once every year. That's what every Christian should do. So every year he goes to Congress, he has a brand new Bible with him. So he's reading the Bible that year in Congress. He's annotating out in the margins what the Lord's showing him, what the Lord's saying to him. When he gets home, he gives it to his kids. Now, a couple things. You had to be in Congress a long time to, to be able to give a Bible to all your kids because he had 15 kids. So you have to keep going to Congress a long time, keep having a bunch of... Roger Sherman, we don't even know who the guy is today. We have the same thing when you go to Charles Carroll. He's the final surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence. He lived to be 95 years old. The average lifespan in that generation was 33 years old, so he lives to be 95. He outlived his kids. He outlived his grandkids. One of his family members wrote him and said, Charles, you will die someday. And when you do die, are you ready to meet God when you die? He answered, 
this. This is his handwritten letter. This is his answer. Am I ready to meet God when I die? He says, yes, I am. He says, right here in the center. You see where it says, on the mercy? He says, of course I'm ready to meet God when I die. He says, it's on the mercy of my Redeemer that I rely... Get it going here. Come on. There it is. On the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I've done in obedience to his precepts. Now, that's quoting Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest you can boast. I, he says, I'm ready to meet God because of what he did for me, not because of what I've done. And so that was the position we held. And interestingly enough, Charles, Charles Carroll was one of the, by the time you get to the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, there's only three signers left alive. 50 years later, it's Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Charles Carroll. On the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, on July the 4th, 1826, Jefferson and Adams both died, leaving him the only guy left alive 50 years later. So the city of New York wrote him and said, we have an original copy of the Declaration. We want to have you take that Declaration. You're the last guy left alive. We want you to write on it your final thoughts concerning America. Now that you've lived more than 50 years after the fact, what do you, what do you think when you see America today? This is what he wrote on that Declaration of Independence displayed in City Hall, New York City. He said very simply, he says, I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's conferred on my beloved country. He said, I can't thank God enough for what he's done for America through Jesus Christ. That's his final thoughts decades later. That's not any of the tone we get today. So when we're told these guys are enemies of Christ, how did they get away with saying that? They get away with saying that because we don't know our history today. I mean, quite frankly, we did in previous generations. This is an old textbook from 1848 called Lives of the Signers. It's in the resource store. For public schools, we studied all 56 signers of the Declaration. We knew their faith, their character, what they sacrificed. Ten of these guys never lived to see the end of the revolution. They wanted us to experience freedom. We knew where they were on all issues. We don't anymore. We even knew the wives. All, all the wives. It's amazing what the wives went through for independence. Several of them were thrown in prison, made prisoners of war. Elizabeth Lewis died as a result of mistreatment in prison, standing up and fighting for America. We don't hear any of that. But John Adams, who was there that day, he talked about what happened on the day. As a matter of fact, as he often did, he wrote Abigail, and he said, Abigail, he said, we've declared independence today. He said, I've been thinking about what we did. I've been thinking about this day. And he says, as I think about this day, he says, I'm apt to believe that this day will be celebrated by succeeding generations of the great anniversary festival. He says, today, I think about what we just did. He said, I bet you 100 years from now, they're going to want to celebrate what we did today. They're going to call this the national birthday. Now, I find that amazing that something that he did on that day, he stopped to think how future generations would see it. We rarely do that. We rarely say, you know, what I just did, what I just said, what I just saw, what are they going to think about that 100 years from now? But he did. He said, I think they're going to make this a holiday. And his, his dilemma was, is this, what we just did, this document, is that something that should be celebrated? And he finally decided, yeah. He said, this day ought to be commemorated. This day ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance. He said this day ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. He said this day ought to be celebrated, and it ought to be celebrated as a religious holiday. When we celebrate our independence, we should do it with solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Now, it's interesting. 62 years later, President of the United States John Quincy Adams was addressing a crowd. He said, why is it that in America, the 4th of July... And Christmas are our top two religious, holiday, religious holidays. 
He said, think about it. Our top two religious holidays, he says, because we celebrate the same thing. He explained to the crowd, he pointed out, he said, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior, that is with Christmas. It forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation. The Declaration of Independence first organized a social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission on earth and laid the cornerstone of human government on the first precepts of Christianity. In short, what happened at Christmas was through the birth of Christ, certain Christian principles came into the world. What happened on the 4th of July was we took those Christian principles and built a nation on those Christian principles. So we're celebrating the same thing. We're celebrating Christian principles. On the birth of Jesus at Christmas, we celebrate those principles coming into the world. On the 4th of July, we celebrate those Christian principles coming into a nation, coming into a government. That's why we saw those two days. They were our top two religious holidays in America. So I encourage you, Thursday on Independence Day, make that a religious holiday. It hasn't been in a number of generations in America, but it's not because they didn't try. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to see what John Adams himself said about this, this period, Fourth of July is a religious holiday. He was worried that future generations might not understand it and that we might even take for granted what they had done because it cost them a lot to do what they did. There was a lot in the way of lost lives, everything else. And so talking to the next generation, here's what John Adams said. He said, posterity, you will never know how much it cost the present generation, my generation, to preserve your freedom. I hope you'll make good use of it. If you don't, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Don't make me sit in heaven and regret that we sacrificed so much and you guys gave it away. See, that's a challenge for us is we need to take the principles that have given us 243 years and we've got to keep those principles alive. America's not just a happy accident. I, I mean, there's a reason other nations average 17 years. We've had 243. We've been built on a different foundation. And yes, there were flaws and blemishes and America had warts on its nose. We're not a perfect nation, never have been. But yet, we did more to try to incorporate God in areas than any other nation, and God blessed that. The Network Live will be back next week at 10 a.m. right here on KNEO Radio 95.3 FM and KNEOradio.com. I'm Debbie Rule. Thank you for listening today.